Well, this morning we are finishing up a sermon series in the parables of Jesus uh, as told in the Gospel of Luke. We have looked at these incredible stories that Jesus told, these stories that show us so much about who he is and what he offers us in the cross, about what it means to live with him in his kingdom. And so we come to the end of these parables of Jesus today uh, with a parable from Luke chapter 20. And so if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 29 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, of all of the ways that the scriptures describe God to us, one of the clearest and simplest, one of the ones that is the most comfort to our hearts is the one that we find in 1 John chapter 4, uh, where John tells us that God is love. God is love. Now, the Bible describes God in all kinds of other ways. He, he does other things. He has other attributes. God also judges and he rules and he orders our lives. God works in history. God does all of these things. But none of them are so core to his nature that the scriptures tell us that he is that. It never says that God is judgment or that God is ordering. But it says that God is love and that all of those other operations, all of those other attributes, all of those other things that God does in the world and in our lives are always consistent with his love. They're always an outworking of his love but that we can know at his core that God's nature is love and his orientation towards us is always loving, that it's always built on and out of his love. Now, this is both very, very simple and incredibly hard for us to believe, right? There's things about our own lives that make it hard for us to believe. There's things about our own past, our own sin that make us believe. You know what? Surely God's main posture towards me couldn't be love. Right? Maybe there's pain in your life, there's struggles that you're going through, that you're saying, surely God's orientation towards me can't be love and his nature can't be love. If it was, I wouldn't be suffering, I wouldn't be hurting, I wouldn't be questioning. And yet God tells us that at the root of all of his heart towards us is love. And then there's places in the Bible, places like this parable, 
that make it hard for us to believe that God really is love. There's passages of the Bible like this one that seem to us to be at odds with the idea of God as love. Right? Verses uh, like this one where it says, what will God do to those people? Surely he will destroy them. He'll cast them out and give the kingdom to another. That the that Jesus is like a stone that falls on some and crushes them. But the thing that we can know about the Bible, about the God of the Bible, is that he is love. And that whatever, whatever else is true about him is that it operates out of his love. Right? The, the vineyard owner of this parable represents the same God as the father in the prodigal son parable. Represents the same God as the lavish host in the great banquet parable. And when we read a story and struggle to know, well, okay, that doesn't seem loving. How can that be love? It says actually more about us. It says more about our impoverished definition of love. That we think love always looks the same way, acts the same way, responds the same way. We think that love never has consequences, that love never has teeth, that love never has strength. And so what we're called to do as Christians, confessing that God is love, is to go to God and, and let him define what love is for us. For us to come to understand his love so we can know how he loves us, what his love for us means. And so that then we can have a right definition of what love is as we move out and try to love our loved ones, our friends, our family, our neighbors. And so surprisingly, uh, we are going to find in this parable the story of a God who is incredibly, lavishly loving to his people. The first thing we see in this parable is that because God is love, he is compassionate and patient with his people. Because God is love, he is compassionate and patient. The story that Jesus tells is this. He says there's a, there's a landowner who owned a vineyard, and he planted that vineyard, and then he leased it out to some tenant farmers. This wouldn't have been an uncommon relationship in the ancient world for somebody to own land and then to lease it out to some tenants who would then farm it. All of the land belonged to the landowner. All of the crops belonged to the landowner, but they would give a portion to him. A portion of the profits would go to the owner as rent. right? And then a portion of it they would keep. They would enjoy the profit of the land, but they were clearly renters and not owners. And that was the relationship. And so the time came for the vineyard owner to, to collect the rent, for him to get his portion of the harvest. And so he sends a servant to these, these tenant farmers, and we're told that they beat him and cast him out. This wasn't a small thing for them to do. A servant uh, that was given the ability to act in this capacity for the landowner would have been a very trusted servant. This would have been someone who had the, uh, essentially the power of attorney, he had the capacity to act and to speak as the landowner. He went as a representative of the landowner in his person. And so for him to get beaten to within an inch of his life and then sent out of the vineyard was really a declaration of war against the landowner. It was a declaration that they were going to take the land that was his and they weren't going to let him have anything of it. And so what does this landowner do when confronted with this outright assault by these murderous robbers who are out for his possessions, what does he do? He sends another servant. Right? He would have been justified already at this point to send not a servant but an army, you know, to, to send a collections agency to go after these people and to take his land back. 
But instead, he sends another servant. They beat this one, and they send him out. And so what does he do? He sends a third servant. I would, I would not have wanted to be the third servant. Right? The guy who gets sent to these tenants, having seen what happened to his two friends. And yet the, the landowner sends another servant. And he says, no, go plead with them. Go after them again. You know, really up to this point in the story, what Jesus is doing is telling a story that really describes all of the God of the Bible's interaction with his people Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 says that God took a vineyard and he planted it. And it's a symbol of Israel. It's a symbol of these people that he rescued out of Egypt and he took to a good land, a fruitful land, and he put them there and he let them put down roots in the hope that they would grow and produce a crop, that they would flourish as a people, and through them the whole world would be blessed and loved. But instead, the story of God and his vineyard is one where the vineyard owners, the the leaders, the people who represented the people of Israel, wandered away from the faith. They abused the vineyard. They abused the poor who lived among them. They got rich at their expense. They started worshiping idols instead of God. And so over and over, God sent servants to them. The servants here are representative of the prophets. These representatives that God would send to Israel to plead with them, to say, turn your hearts back, turn your hearts away from your dishonesty and your idolatry and your unbelief and come back to me. Right? The prophets are a, a section of the Bible that few of us approach very often. Right? It can seem overwhelming to read the prophets. But if you remember that that's basically what's going on in all of the prophets, that God's sending a messenger to say, turn your hearts, turn back to me. And if you turn back to me, there will be these incredible blessings of my grace and my mercy. And if you turn away from me, there will be these consequences. There will be real pain and real consequences. Starting next week, we're actually going to look at one of the prophets, uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Micah this prophet of Israel who had these incredible promises of what life would have when the Messiah came, but yet also had real threats to the people if they continued in their unbelief and idolatry. And so over and over, God sends these prophets. He shows incredible compassion, incredible patience for his people. Most of the prophets had pretty miserable lives. Uh, Most of them uh, got treated much like these servants. They got beaten, They weren't listened to. They got sent out. Being a prophet was not a glamorous job. And yet they show in their lives and their suffering for the people God's own incredible compassion and mercy. The Greek word that's operative here uh, for this, this, uh, the patience of God is makthrumia. It's a word that's used often in the Greek philosophers. It means this kind of long-suffering, noble patience. It's used for someone who is in power, a nobleman who had the right and the ability to get justice right away, who had every right uh, to follow through and take the full demands of justice, but instead showed mercy, showed patience, showed forbearance with people. In the great Greek writers, it was one of the highest virtues to be someone who who didn't have a short fuse, who wasn't someone who demanded justice right away. And that's what we see as God here, is that God has this incredible amount of patience to his people. You know, really it's the patience of God that drives the entire story of the Bible. 
if not for God's patience and his compassion, the Bible would be an incredibly short book. Right? God made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. God smote them off the face of the earth, the end. Everything else after the fall of Adam only exists as the unfolding of the patience of God, the compassion of God, of not letting human sin be the end of the story, but out of his love reaching out again and again, sending his messengers, sending his love, trying to gather his people back to him. You know, I think it's also true of our own lives. That I know my life would be incredibly short if not for the compassion and patience of God. If God gave me uh, the punishment that my sins deserve, the justice that my sins deserve, the moment that, I, the moment that they deserved it, my life would be a very short one and it'd be a very empty one. But God's posture towards us is incredibly patient. You know, I was sitting around with two, uh, two guys this week and we were talking about this in our own lives, the fact that God has been incredibly patient with us. There are sins in my life that have taken decades. Forget, forget about sins that took decades for me to actually start to show some improvement on. There are sins in my life that took decades for me to see, for me to be aware of them even being sin. There are attitudes that I've had in my own hearts, attitudes of pride and prejudice, attitudes of anger and lust, that it's taken me decades of following Jesus before I even recognized them as wrong. And God has been unbelievably patient with me over the course of that. And these other men, we're just sharing stories about particular areas of our real lives that God has just been incredibly tender, incredibly patient with in our lives. And because God is love, because God is love, he is compassionate and patient. And then we also see that because God is love, he makes himself vulnerable. Because God is love, he makes himself vulnerable in loving us. You know, love always entails vulnerability. Right? To love anyone is to open yourself to the possibility of rejection. Right? They'll either accept your love or they'll reject your love. They'll either exclude you or embrace you. They'll either warm your heart or break your heart. And the unique thing about the God of Christianity, compared to all of the other gods of the world, is that he is a God who makes himself vulnerable in love. He becomes a God who we can hurt, whose heart we can break. And we see his extreme vulnerability in this. This landowner, having sent three of his most trusted servants and having them beaten and sent out of the vineyard, still doesn't take his justice. But what does he do? He says to himself, I'll send my beloved son. I'll send my only son. Surely then they'll come to their senses. Surely then they'll repent. He sends his own son into what's proven to be a den of lions. Right? What's proven to be an extremely unsafe situation. He says, I'm going to send my son. The logic is this, is that surely when they see my incredible graciousness, surely when they see my son and they see that I'm not taking justice and I haven't come after them, surely when they see my son, they're going to realize how noble I am, how understanding I've been, how, how much forbearance I've shown. Surely then, surely then we'll be reconciled. 
And yet, instead of ceasing their violence, the, the tenants escalated. When the tenants saw them, verse 14, when they saw him, verse 14, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We have to remember that the incredibly charged nature of this story, right? This is a story that's on the lips of Jesus in the final week of his life. This is a story that's on the lips of Jesus after the triumphant entry, before his betrayal by Judas, before his trial and his crucifixion. Right? This is Jesus narrating the story up to and including his own ministry, saying not only have you rejected the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, not only have you rejected them, but now you're on the verge of rejecting me, the only beloved son, God himself, God in the flesh, come to you to win you back. And I'm on the verge of laying down uh, my life. There's no possibility in this world of real relationship apart from vulnerability, right? Apart from, from us being willing to expose ourselves to one another. And in Christ, we see God, the one who, by all rights, should have been utterly without vulnerability, right? The one who sits enthroned in heaven, rules over all things, and could have done so from eternity past until eternity future, never opening himself to pain, never opening himself to suffering, Instead, in love, making himself vulnerable, making himself incredibly vulnerable, God comes to us in vulnerability. He comes to us uh, as a God who takes on flesh, who becomes vulnerable and hurtable, all for the goal of winning us back to himself. So in his love, he becomes vulnerable. And then because God is love, he's committed absolutely committed to justice. Right? Look at what uh, Jesus says. He says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Right? Just because God is patient, uh, just because God is compassionate, just because God is vulnerable, doesn't mean that God is permissive of sin. Right? It doesn't mean that God is just going to be patient forever and ever and ever. That he's just going to kick the can of his justice down the road inevitably. But that God, being God in his love, is committed to bringing this world to justice. Is committed to making this world right. He's committed to dealing with sin and all of its effects in this world. And that is actually a part of his love. In the Old Testament, the psalmists, when they celebrate God's salvation, when they celebrate that day that they're looking forward to, when God will come and save the world, they always talk about his judgment as being a part of that. Right? that to, to talk about God's salvation and to talk about God's judgment are really two sides of the same coin. That it's a part of God's commitment to make the world whole and to make the world right means that he has to deal with sin and brokenness and injustice. That he has to bring the world to justice. You know, this, uh, this commitment of God to bring the world to justice, if God did not have it, he wouldn't be loving. Right? You know how painful life in this world is, right? You know the effects of injustice in this world. You see the wars that go on at the hands of unjust warlords. 
right? You see, you see the cycles of poverty. You see the cycles of violence and injustice. You see the, the, the places in this world where they're just wrapped in cycles of violence, right? The Palestinians kill the Israelites who kill the Palestinians who kill the Israelites who kill them back. It just happens over and over again. There's this cycle of violence. And if the only being in the universe who had the capacity to put it to a stop didn't, if the only being in the universe with the moral authority to condemn injustice and violence, the only one with the power to bring evil to account, if the only one with that capacity chose not to, if he chose to say, well, we'll just we'll let them work it out. I don't want to be seen as judgmental, so I'm just going to let them keep figuring it out on their own. That would not be a God of love. That would not be a God of love. The God of love reaches into this world. Yes, patiently. He continues to endure hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of human sin and folly. Right? In order to continue to be patient and to reach out to humanity. But that he does call this world to account. He does call evil to account. In this story, it talks about him really calling Israel to account. That's what it means when it says that he'll take the vineyard away and give it to others. Is that his patience with them, his forbearance with them, when they reject his son, they finally reject him in such a way that the vineyard is now belongs to others because his justice is real. Now, there's some of us here who really struggle with this. right? There's those of us who we would want to say, yes, we, we believe that God is love, but we don't believe that God's love must be just. Right? We, don't, we don't like that part of what the scriptures tell us that God's love is. We wish that God's love wasn't just patient, but was eternally tolerant. We wish that God's justice could just be done away with. But that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. Others of us love the idea of God's justice, usually for others. right? But we, we love the idea that, yes, Right? God one day is going to call those people to account, and we're going to get even, and things are going to get right, and the righteous people are going to be lifted up, and the sinful evildoers are going to be cast out, and all is going to be right. And you need to hear the message of God's patience, right? that God's love is patient. He bears with the sin and folly of us in our own lives and that of our neighbors, that he is incredibly patient in exercising his judgment. He's incredibly patient, and real love has to do both. All right, so what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us that God is love and that he loves us in these, these incredible ways that are both patient and vulnerable and just? What does it mean for us? Well, first, and perhaps most simply, it means that we just receive God's love. Right, that God's love, this love, is for you. That this kind of incredibly patient and gracious love, this kind of tender vulnerability, this commitment to opposing everything that is sinful and disordered in you, this commitment to remaking not only the world but your own life in new and good and vital ways, that that love is for you. And it's for, it's for you by grace. Right? The incredible miracle of the gospel is that somehow, to keep using the metaphors of this, of this parable, is that somehow the death of the Son 
ends in the reconciliation of his murderers. Right? That the tenants who killed the son, somehow their sin is covered by the blood of the son. Right? That God's patience pushes through even unbelief, even our, our, our attempts to reject God, that, that the worst of our sin is covered by the blood of the Son. Right? That God in His grace reaches out to us in love and that He makes a way for us through the cross to be one with Him, to be sheltered from the penalty of our sin, from the pain of, of eternity. That He makes a way for us to come within His embrace and that he loves us in this kind of incredible way. I saw a story uh, just a couple of weeks ago that really put some, some flesh and bones on this love for me. There was a story, um, just a, really, literally just a couple of weeks ago, there was a, there was a group of three buildings in China uh, that collapsed. This has become a problem in China. Um, as the Chinese population moves from being a fairly rural population to living in cities, uh, mostly because there's all these industrial jobs, manufacturing jobs. Literally hundreds of millions of Chinese have moved towards cities and have needed places to live. And so they've built these buildings very, very quickly, uh, very inexpensively, and often not very well. And so in a large city, uh, one day, four of these buildings collapsed at once. It had been at the end of a rainy season. Um, and these buildings collapsed, kill killing dozens of people. Uh, it was it could have been much, much more, but it was during the middle of the day. And so these buildings collapsed in, in China, and rescue workers for over 24 hours worked to pull away the rubble, worked to clear through this rubble to see if there were any survivors there. And the last survivor that they found, literally after over 24 hours of searching, the last survivor that they found was a three-year-old little girl who was found alive under the huddled body of her father. That as the buildings began to fall, as it began to collapse, her, her, her father, this man named Wu Ningxi, embraced his daughter, and he covered her over with his own back. And as the rubble fell, it crushed him, it broke his back. But the little girl was, was discovered in, the, in, this pound, in this pile of rubble, in this little nest of safety, that was formed by the broken body of her father. One rescue worker, uh, through a translator, put it this way. This child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. How do we respond to the love of God? In some ways, it's as simple as what this little girl did. You curl up. You rest in your father's embrace and you don't move. You trust that there in his embrace, there's shelter, and there's kindness, and there's safety, and there's love. You simply rest and let the love of God given to you in the gospel, the love of God through the broken flesh and blood of the Son, shelter you and hold you. And then you live the rest of your days in response to that. Right? The tragedy of this story is that this little girl is going to grow up without parents. Her mother was also killed uh, in, this, in this collapse, as were her siblings. So she'll grow up without her family. But one thing that, that we hope that this little girl never grows up wondering is, did my dad love me? Right? I'm alive 
because my father sheltered me, because he gave himself for me. I draw the air that's in my lungs I have only because of my father's love. And you'd hope that that fact forms her identity, that even as she goes through everything that life ahead holds for her, she'll know that she was the beloved daughter of her father and that he sacrificed for her. And that the rest of her days will be lived out of a gratitude for that, out of that assurance. And that's what the gospel sets us free to do is to live our lives out of gratitude for the love that we've been given, extending that love to the people around us, being for others the sheltering embrace and love that God's given to us. I love the way that Jesus ends the parable. He says, the stone, uh, quoting the Psalms, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? What does the cornerstone do? A cornerstone sets the foundation and sets the shape of an entire building. And what he's saying here is the sacrifice of the Son is the cornerstone of the church. It sets its shape, it sets its trajectory, that all those who, who, who receive Christ by faith and are, are being built up into a new building, a new family, and it looks like Jesus, it loves like Jesus, that the church is called to be this kind of love for our neighbors, to be God's patient, compassionate love for our neighbors. To not be people that demand that they change, to not be people that demand that they think just like we do as soon as we say uh, that they should, but people who bear with our neighbors, people who bear with our loved ones, who show the patience that God has shown to us, to our loved ones. I was sharing earlier about the things that God has been toler or that he's been patient about in my own life for decades, and I often struggle to be patient uh, with character flaws in other people for like a week. Um, I'll give you about that long to, to get it figured out. But to begin to extend that same kind of compassion to our neighbors, to move towards them with that kind of vulnerability, being willing to love even if it means our hearts being broken, and to have that kind of commitment to justice, that kind of commitment to seeing the world set right, having been deeply loved by the God who is love, we're called to embody and proclaim that love in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world.